Welcome to episode 59 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we're going to be talking about sales and success. Um, what makes a book successful? And, you know, what do we mean when we say the word success? Because that yeah. means lots of different things. <laughs> there are many ways for a book to be successful. Yes. So I did write a post on PubCrawl about the meritocracy myth, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, show notes that basically says that success is relative in this industry. But I realize that is also cold comfort to hear, especially when you are either have been published on your way to being published, you know, when you're finally getting into it, it's hard to gauge your quote relative success without any hard numbers behind it. So this is I, this is kind of in our 101, Publishing 101 series a little bit. It sort of bridges the kind of author life slash publishing part of, of our podcast um, because sales is something that authors and publishers do concern themselves with. So I guess the first question is how do people define a success? I guess we could do it two ways. We can do how authors define success and how a publisher defines success. Mm. And so let's start with how a publisher defines success. And that's pretty easy. If the author makes them money. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you earn out your, your advance, you're a success. (laughs) Well, like even if you don't earn out, even if, right. You know, because your publisher makes money sooner than you do. When it comes to book sales, because you get 10, 10, 15, 10 to 15% of the list price, whereas a publisher, you know, gets a, a different cut of that essentially. So they start making money sooner than the author does. So how do you gauge that as an author? How do you know when you're publishing, when you are making your publisher money? Well, it's a little bit hard for us to keep track as authors because we only get royalty statements at most twice a year. Mm-hmm. There are some notable exceptions. For example, if you're published through any one of Amazon's imprints, uh, 47 North is one. Um, there's a couple of other Amazon imprints, like Amazon does have their own traditional publishing arm. I do believe that they send royalty statements to their authors monthly. Um, but aside from that, everyone else gets twice a year. Generally, there's one that comes in April for the previous six months. And by previous six months, I mean July through December of the previous year. And then you get another one in October that covers the accounting period from January to June. So I know it's really annoying for a lot of authors because they only get paid twice a year if they get paid at all. And they only really know twice a year how they're doing. (laughs) So I, I, I understand that that is frustrating. Unfortunately, that is the only official way you can find out if your book is a success or not compared to how much your publisher paid you. In our previous podcasts, we had talked about money just 
a, a broad overview of how publishers spend money on advances, on subrights, and all sorts of things like that. So you can figure out how much money you are making roughly. First, you look at your contract. As Kelly likes to to put in, (laughs) look at your contracts, read your contracts, and your contract should specify what your royalty rates are on which format. So, for example, let's say your publisher bought a book from you. You're an adult hardcover and your publisher bought a book from you. They spent $10,000 on your advance. Your book is going to be priced at $25 and you have, you get 10% of list price for the first 5,000 copies sold, you know? And so you can roughly calculate that. Okay. So how many copies do I have to sell? If I get, you know, a dollar per book, how many copies do I have to sell before I, I earn $10,000 worth per book? So, but that doesn't actually show the whole picture either. <laughs> um, you can, in fact, ask your publisher for what we call real numbers, which the actuals, which is, and your publisher should have access to that information, which they have a, a much better picture real time of how many copies have been shipped to bookstores. And this includes markets that you would not see in things like BookScan or Author Central on Amazon. Uh, that would be library markets, special markets, anything like that that don't report. They would have a much better picture so they can give you, quote, real numbers, what your royalties would be based on when you see your statement statement come in. So, okay, so there are a couple of pieces that go into, on the publishing side, what is considered a success. And like I said, this sort of feeds into the author idea of success. Um, But advance, the size of your advance is the first piece, how much money they spent on you. And the size of your print run, this is pretty much tied in with how many copies each account has ordered. They they basically base your print run numbers on how many copies each account is taking. And the other piece is sell-through rate. So let's try and break these down one by one. We did talk about advance already, so I'll put a link to our that old episode in our show notes and we'll, when we talk about the monies. So then let's talk about print run. A print run is exactly what it sounds like. It's just the number your your publisher decides on on how many copies of your book to print. Um, this now, the real question that authors have is, what is a good number for a first print run? Well, Kelly, can you answer that? I it depends, <laughs> <laughs> which is such a horrible answer. <laughs> But it really does. It depends on the book and the publishing house. You know, obviously, um, smaller presses are going to have much smaller print runs um, than larger houses. And, you know, again, even within the same house, even with a, in a big five publishing house, you know, their lead titles are probably going to have larger print runs than their mid list because they've invested more money in that and they're expecting to push that book really hard. Um, you know, so print runs vary. It's, it's hard to, to name a number, you know, that's good. I want to say, I'm going to pull a number out of thin air and I don't know, 
Um, you know, but I feel like, I feel like you want like 5,000, like for a first print run is a normal expectation. Yeah, a little low, like that's kind of honestly, it can depend so much. It really yeah. can. Um, and also because a lot of books on the arc, the marketing materials, you'll see, you know, they're like announced market distribution slash announced first print is like a hundred thousand copies, <laughs> but they won't actually print a hundred thousand copies for your first print. A good rule of thumb is that if you are announced uh, whatever the the print run is, generally about a quarter of that is probably going to be your print run. Yeah. Um, and that's neither good or bad. It's just you know they obviously the bigger the the bigger the announced first print or the announced market distribution, the bigger that they're pushing, the more that they're going to push this title, trying to position it as a big book. They're trying to position you know position it to the accounts like, hey, we're going to print this many copies, so you should take a lot of copies. Is kind of the way the publishers or the sales team anyway is trying to game that with the with the accounts. But accounts are, of course, wise to this as well. So it's kind of this weird game of chicken sometimes in publishing. Yeah, you try to make it sound desirable. It's like, look, so many people want this that we're printing so many copies. So you really want this too, right? You know? Yeah, you want a good number, blah, 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 blah. Um, so we'll say, okay, so we're going we're gonna to focus on the, the print run piece of it. So 5,000 copies, we'll kind of give that as like a baseline number. We're not going, I mean, if, if there are authors out there and your first print is less than 5,000 copies, don't think of that as being not a success. No, no. <laughs> because as we mentioned, this is relative. This is relative to how much you got paid on your advance. And this is just, everything depends on this business. It's, it's so individualized, but we'll say there's a 5,000 copy print run and that's your first print. And they were printing 5,000 copies because Barnes & Noble decided to take 1,500. Amazon decided to take 1,000. So you kind of have, uh, and like various other accounts like Indies and whatever decided, and that's like an additional $1,000. So you have 3,500 copies that accounts are buying to stock into their stores. So you're going to obviously print a little bit more than that to kind of give yourself some leeway in case they re-up their order or whatever. So that's considered your first print run. The third part that I was talking about earlier, sell through, basically means this is now this, in my opinion, is the real marker of success. Like a real actual marker of success is if you sell through your first print run. So they printed 5,000 copies of your book. It would be considered a success if you sold 4,000 copies of those to your accounts, right? So Barnes and Noble took 2,000, Amazon took 1,000, you know, the Indies and whatever took, you know, another 1,000. So you have 4,000 copies sold and they didn't return them. So Mm -hmm. that's a sell-through rate of 80%. That's really good. Um, because the whole thing, the whole thing about royalty is that they always have something called reserve. Reserve against, against returns. Yeah, Kelly, read your you contracts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so read your contracts because there'll be language about reserves against returns in there. But um, essentially, in really, really simplified terms, 
the pu- the publishing business model works like this. So the publisher has accounts, as JJ said, with various booksellers, and they sell. Barnes and Noble will place an order, you know, for a thousand copies, but they don't pay for those thousand copies right away. Um, they get their copies and then they sell as many as they can sell. But let's say Barnes and Noble overestimated, they've only sold like. 700 of the thousand and they want to turn the the 300 back. They don't want them anymore because they don't think that they're going to sell them. So they give those books back to the publisher. They return them. Your publisher, and this is also part of the reason why royalties are paid only twice yearly on this bizarre schedule because it takes time to get all of this accounted properly to wait for the returns to come in to, you know, get up the real numbers. So publishers will keep what's called a reserve against returns, which is an amount of money for your royalties that they hold back and they don't pay you to guard against books being returned because they don't want to pay you royalties on a thousand copies and then have 300 copies return and then ask you, hey, we need you to repay some of that money back to us. They want to just withhold that so that they don't overpay you and then, you know, be able to to add it up later and get the accurate numbers after the fact. It's a bizarre way of doing business, <laughs> but it's kind of the way that it works. When you read your contract and you're looking at reserves against returns, I want you to look for two things. I want you to make sure that the percentage of the reserve against returns is defined. 20% is industry standard, so it shouldn't be more than that. If it's less, that's fine. Um, And the other thing is that you want to make sure that those reserves are released on each subsequent period. So once they've figured out how many returns they've got and they sort it all out, they should release whatever money is still owed to you after all those calculations are done. So when you read your contract, check for those two things. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there, another marker of success is when you get your royalty statements is that when you see returns are low, mm. that means that people are buying your books that the accounts haven't overestimated because nothing is actually not nothing, but it, it's kind of not a good sign when a publisher overestimates how many copies that they want to take and then is unable to sell them all then eh, it's not quite so good. Um, so again, that's also kind of a balancing act that the publisher and, this, and the accounts have to make. They have to sort of gauge about how many copies they think this title will sell in their stores. And that's where you kind of arrive at your first print number. So that's very basically what sell-through is. It is how much of your first print you are able to sell through with no returns. Um, and generally I would say the sell, you want to look at your sell through rate over the period of about a year. I would say it's about a year because we mentioned this before as well in our earlier publishing 101 series, which is remainders. Um, and we mentioned then that remainders are basically, there's books left over of your, you know, there are copies left over of your title in the warehouse and they need to clear the warehouse out to make room for new books. So they're going to deeply discount the books in stock. And the earliest I've ever seen a publisher remainder a title is nine months after publication. Um, that's the earliest, but generally it's about a year because often like particularly in YA publishing, you usually have the book card come out in hardcover first. And then about a year later, 
the paperback comes out. And so there, it doesn't make any sense to remainder the hardcover copy of that title before the paperback copy comes out. Um, yeah, so <laughs> the... The the rate of sell through, I have completely lost my train of thought. Where did I, where was I going with this? We were talking about remainders. We were talking about um, within a year defining oh, yeah. success. Yeah, your sell through. Yeah, you want to look at your sell through rate in about a year. So about two two royalty periods, mm-hmm. two accounting periods. You want to look at your statement and see because your royalty statement will tell you how many have been printed, how mm-hmm. many have been shipped. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends, of course, on each house because some houses give incredibly detailed uh, royalty statements and breakdowns, and others are kind of very vague. Like the the most vague I've seen has been like, "This is your first print. This is how many copies we shipped. This is how much, how many more copies we need to ship before you earn out." Basically, um, but yeah, it's about a year. So you, this is this is the hard part. You cannot gauge immediately whether or not a book is a success. I mean, you can it's kind true. of guess. Yeah, you can guess. But you know, there are plenty of examples of books that are come out really strong out the gate and then have a steep fall off. Yeah, because this too is not every book will have a life on the backlist. So the backlist is when. You know, um, titles are still selling, still appearing in the publisher's catalog, um, but they're they're from last year or the year before. Um, so they're older titles or the previous season, even um, the previous catalog. And that's called backlist. And you want to be on the backlist. That's a really great thing because it means that there's continued interest in your book and you're having steady sales and, you know, titles that backlist are more likely to earn royalties because of that. Um, you know, so that's definitely a measure of success too, but again, not every book gets to that point. Um, you know, so, you know, the year mark is a good place to kind of gauge how your book is doing. Yeah. So, okay. So we talked about sell through rate and I want to kind of shift it back to print run. So let's say your we your publisher prints five thousand copies of your book, and it's selling really well. The rate of returns is really low, and so hurrah! They're ordering more. They're re-upping their orders. The accounts are re-upping. So your book goes into another printing, and that is always a good sign if your mm-hmm. book goes into multiple printings. Now the the size of your the subsequent printings will be much smaller than your print run, um, but you can tell which books belong to which printing by, if you actually look at the front of your book and in the copyright section, there's a bunch of numbers at the bottom and you know, it's like 10, nine, eight, and it goes, it goes all the way down. If it goes into another printing, the second printing, the one disappears off that list of numbers. So, and so if you're in the third printing, the one and the two have gone from that list of numbers. So you can actually tell which printing your book is in by that kind of yardstick. That's actually what it's for. The So obviously reprints are really good. That probably means your sell-through rate is pretty good. And anytime you hear reprint, you're probably going to be a success. Your publisher will consider you a success. Yet this still doesn't mean necessarily that you've earned out. <laughs> it just means that your book is doing better than anticipated and people are buying more. So that prompts them to print more copies. So that's kind of explaining print runs to you. Mm-hmm. 
it kind of broadly. So what about um, awards and honors and bestseller lists as markers of success? I feel like that's, you know, that's really more of an author thing, (laughs) (laughs) which we can get to in a little bit. Um, Okay. I jumped the gun. Well, I guess it's only because like, I'll be completely honest, like awards are great. You know, if you're a publisher and your book gets an award, but awards are great insofar as like, okay, we can slap that sticker on this cover and then that might, might, might sell more copies, you know, might get more eyes on this title, might get more people to pick it up because they've heard about it and they've heard it's been critically acclaimed. Um, so, you know, obviously in, in a, from a publisher perspective, getting an award or getting onto the, the, the best, any bestselling list is, is a great thing because it just means to them we can sell more copies. Now I don't want to make everybody sound that heartless because obviously there are people in publishing who care about the quality of the books that they're working on, who care that these books are for underserved communities and lift up voices and have literary merit and all of that. That is all absolutely important to the individuals working on these titles. But when we step back and look at the publisher as a whole, you know, obviously it comes down to the bottom line. So there's, there's that too. So, okay, let's, let's go to the author piece then. So we've got awards, New York times bestsellers. I think for authors, those are the easiest markers of success because they are public facing. You know, if you hit the New York Times bestseller list, you are entitled to the title New York Times bestselling author forever and ever and ever. Amen. Even if you never hit the list again. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the same thing with if your book gets an award or is honored for an award, you can slap that sticker on your cover forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. So that's one marker of success. That's prestige, you know, in, in a way. Like even the New York Times bestseller, which is weird. <laughs> we talked about it a little bit and really almost as meaningless, but it's still a marker of prestige. Um, so that's kind of the public facing part. But let's talk about money because I feel like money is really what it comes down to when authors think about success. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, Kelly. What would you think an author would define as success in terms of money? What do I think an author would determine as success in terms of money? Um, I don't know. I think, what do I think for an author? I mean you hear all about these six figure deals, but again, those are rare. (laughs) They're the ones you hear about, but they're not, you know, so if that's what an author is defining, is defining as success, I want to, I want to caution you to restructure your, (laughs) your thoughts. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel, I feel like this is such a cop out, but I think there's, there's levels and, and it's successful no matter what. Cause I mean, it's a book deal. Um, I, I, I hesitate to name an amount. I let, I would say 50,000 would be considered. What is that in the P- publisher's marketplace? Is that the good deal? It's a good, uh, it's, it's, I think it's very nice. nice. I think it's very nice, nice because I think yeah. good deal is six figures. Yep. Yeah, you're right. And then significant is longer than that. I forget them all. Yeah. 
I think a mark, I think financially a marker of success is when you start making royalties. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. Like I said, not every author is going to make royalties, but when you start making royalties is, I would say the ultimate marker of success because you don't have to continually rely on new deals and new deals and new deals and new deals to make ends meet. Um, Obviously, everybody has and should, I think, set personal goals for themselves when it comes to to success. There are going to be goals that you cannot control, like hitting the New York Times bestseller list. And then there are goals that you will be able to control, which is writing your next book. Um, But when when it comes to financial success, when it comes to a book. I think for an author. What you want to strive for is earning royalties every period. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely what you want to do. And the smaller your advance, the quicker you're going to earn out and start earning royalties. So when I say 50,000, that's not what I determine to be a successful advance. That's I think authors think that there's more money out there than there necessarily is, because I think we publicize these expensive large advances. And, you know, I think that when authors see the reality of what most advance amounts are, it'll probably be a little bit of a shock (laughs) to them. I'll be okay. So just to give you an example of how hard it is to earn out, and I don't want to discourage anyone or scare anybody, but for example, let's say your advance is $10,000 and your royalty rate on we'll say twenty dollar books, so we'll give you two dollars per book for the first five thousand copies. You have to sell essentially five thousand copies before you see a single penny. Now remember what we told you about kind of a ballpark baseline print run as being five thousand copies. <laughs> so it's yeah it's hard to do. That's why we say it's hard to earn out. And if you look at Of course, not every author has access to other authors' sales data, obviously. But if you if you look at authors' track records, or at least that I was able to look on in BookScan, of course, this isn't this isn't actuals because there's several accounts that do not report to BookScan, so it will Mm -hmm. not give an entire picture. But the um, I would say, on average, new books, new YA books over the course of a year it would be considered pretty decent if they sold 10,000 copies over the course of a year. And, you know, again, going back to that, you had a $10,000 advance with 10% on $2 for the first 5,000. Then you have 12.5% on $20 for the next 5,000. You can do the math. It actually is a lot more copies to sell to just earn out over a long period of time. So there's the, the trade-off here is because a lot more agents and a lot more authors will push for higher advances because that is money guaranteed. Yes. You know, obviously if somebody offers you, okay, we're if like you say you're fielding offers from multiple publishers and one says, okay, we're going to give you $5,000. Um, and then publisher B is like, okay, we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I don't think there's any question that, you would want to take the $100,000 because that is money guaranteed. Whereas if you take the $10,000 advance, your book still might 
bomb, which is why everything in yeah. this business is a, is kind of a gamble. So, okay, so I dropped the B word, a bomb, a flop. Oh. So what is what what is considered a bomb or a flop? Oh man. Um, you know, I think there are lots of books that, you know, just sort of quietly don't do well. Um, you know, and and that is what it is. Um, but a bomb, I think, is when this gets back to the overestimating and the the over over predicting, over hyping, over everything. So the publisher, most bombs I think occur when a publisher has paid a lot of money for a book and they're really banking on it to be their lead title, to be a really strong thing for them. And they, you know, sometimes they pour marketing money into it. Sometimes they don't. And that's why it bombs. Sometimes they think that it's going to do well enough on its own that they don't need to really push it. Um, you know, but maybe they push it, maybe they don't, but money is being invested in this project at, at some level, either in the advance or advance and marketing. Um, and you know, either accounts just aren't ordering enough copies or they're ordering tons of copies. And then there's some disconnect with the consumer where readers just aren't buying it. And there's tons of returns, but essentially it's a, when a book bombs, it's a book that had, a lot of hype or that the publisher expected to have a lot of hype that for whatever reason, the readers are not into it Yeah, and it just bombs and it just does not sell well and nobody is talking about it and nobody cares because normally with these big books, you know, that publishers are putting huge advances um, paying huge advances for these books, they're, they're gambling on this title being the next big thing. And, you know, it, it, you can't always predict what is going to be, what the readers are going to connect to, you know, it could have everything right in theory on paper. And for whatever reason, it's not even that people hate it because when people really hate a book, even that is better because that's yeah, people engagement. Will, yeah. People have feelings about something, you know, sometimes yeah, people will hate read a book. I've done it. They'll I've talk hate read about a book. it. Yeah. They'll <laughs> talk about it and then other people will hear about it and then other people will find it and it, it will, it will live on in that way. Um, but a bomb is just when nobody cares, like accounts yeah. don't care or readers don't care. And it's just this void. It's just, you know, and, and there's, it's, un, it's, you can't salvage that kind of a thing. There's nothing that you can do because if, if you get to that point where the book has already come out and it's on shelves and it's not selling and your accounts are returning books, even if it's only a couple weeks after release, um, it's too late to do anything about it. You can't resurrect it at that point because, your strongest sales are almost always going to be the week that the book comes out. I would say first three months, definitely yeah. the first week your book comes out is going to be your strongest sale. Most, most of the time, especially yeah. if you're in commercial sides of publishing, but I would say the shell average shelf life of a book is about three months. 
mm-hmm. or the length of a season. That's why we have seasons uh, in publishing, because you have a fresh crop of books that come out every three to four months. So, well, Kelly, you are even more doom and gloom than me this time. I'm not trying to be. I'm sorry. Do you disagree? <laughs> Do you have some hope to offer? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> Uh, like I said in in previous podcasts, I don't want to discourage anybody and I don't want to scare anybody or make them despondent, but I want to tell this to you now. So you're not blindsided by it. If it happens to you, we did mention the last week that indifference, nothing kills a book faster than indifference. And that is, you know, and either indifference from the agent and they're, they're, therefore they don't pick up your manuscript, indifference from the editor, they don't want to buy your manuscript, but the worst is indifference from the consumer, especially mm-hmm. if the publisher is banking on this title to do well. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've mentioned too um, that the the way that most people select books to read when they when they determine what their next read is going to be most of the time the most influential thing is word of mouth it's when mm-hmm. somebody that you know is talking about the book and so publishers can put a lot of money in advertising and you can do a blog tour and you know have cover reveals and all that stuff that you know is putting your book out there but if people aren't interested and if individual readers aren't talking about it and aren't anticipating it, then it doesn't matter how many ads your publisher takes out or how many blog tours you do. Um, you need that consumer engagement. Yeah. So that is kind of generally what we consider a bomb, a book that has a lot of support in-house, but not that much consumer support. So we're going to kind of move back to what I talked about in terms of sell-through. The best gauge of whether or not your book is doing well is to see your sell-through rate because your publisher might be pushing this book and the accounts have ordered a lot of copies of your book. And so let's say you have a first print run of 15,000 copies. That's pretty good. So you have a first print run of 15,000 copies, but after the end of a royalty period and they return 8,000 of those copies, it's not quite so good. That is a sell-through rate of less than 50%. Now, I don't like to give hard and fast numbers because, like I said, it all depends. But I would say that a good gauge, you know, that your book is not neither a runaway success or a bomb or a flop if by the end of the year, you have an over 50% sell-through rate. I think that's pretty decent. Um, because you're not going to sell everything, you know, in such a short period of time. You know, sell-through rates do take, just sell-through takes a long time. So, but I would say at the end of the year, if it's been, if it's over 50% of your first print run, I would, I would say, okay, that's, you know, kind of middle of the road. That's not necessarily terrible and that's not necessarily the greatest but you're doing okay it you're likely to get another book deal out of this because i'm going to get even more doom and gloom now (laughs) if your book flops if your book is a bomb it is that much harder 
to sell your next book? So much harder. So, um, and the reason is not necessarily your publisher or your editor. It will be your accounts. If BNN set, if, okay, let me just use BNN for an example. So say BNN took 6,000 copies of your first book, but was only able, able to sell 2,000 of them. So they returned 4,000 copies. Your next book comes out and BNN is going to look at their stuff and they said, well, we only sold 2,000 copies last time, so we're only going to take 3,000 copies this time. That's why it gets kind of progressively harder and harder to sell to sell a book because your name has a track record now. That's often why sometimes you see writers publish again under a pseudonym because even though everybody knows you're the same person, the name has a fresh, doesn't have a past, doesn't have baggage, and it doesn't have history. So you can kind of start again and start anew. That's the even scarier part about sales and, and being considered a success in publishing. The real marker of success, like I said, is getting royalties, but the real marker of success is continuing to publish. That really is it. Like you've, you're making enough money for your publisher that they're interested in buying your next book and your next book and your next book and your next book. None of these might be huge runaway bestsellers. None of these might get you that six-figure deal that allows you to quit your day job. But these are steady sellers. This is this is why midlist was very important because you spend X amount of money for a midlist title and you you know do a good mm-hmm. job setting it up and it sells pretty well. You know you have maybe multiple printings or whatever, and it does well yeah. for you. It makes both you and the author a decent chunk of change. So, um, you know, so even let's say you're the author now, and even if you get an offer for a book and it's only, you know, it's not the six figures you're thinking of, it's not even $50,000, it's like $10,000, $5,000, and it's not what you were hoping for, it's not necessarily a bad thing, you know, it, it could, you know, at that level of money, it is probably considered a midlist title. If, if you're at a big publisher, we'll put it that way. Yeah. If you're at a big publisher, yeah. you know, if a publisher is like, here's $10,000, you can kind of tell that like, Hey, all right, that's probably a midlist title. That probably means that I'm going to be on the midlist, but that won't kill your book. That won't mm-hmm. kill your career. In some ways, midlist is the safest place to be in publishing. Yeah. If you can get, you know, like JJ said, if you're reliable and you publish again and again, you do well on the mid list, you have a decent sell through rate, you start earning royalties and you continue to publish. If you've got four or five books that have strong life on the backlist that continue to sell season after season after season, and you're earning royalties on those, those are steady paychecks that can eventually put you in a better position to maybe quit your day job. Um, you know, it's going to be hard to ever quit your day job on just an advance unless you also mm-hmm. have other means, you know, but if you get to the point in your career where you have consistent royalties that you can more or less count on, at least for the you know near future, that's a very different landscape for you as an author. The ideal publishing scenario is your each book gets bigger. Mm-hmm. You are building your audience. Your name is what gets people to pick up your book. 
I know that there is a lot of pressure and there's always a lot of visibility on debuts because they're the shiny new thing. So obviously shiny and new is going to be exciting to a lot of consumers, but just because your debut wasn't big, it doesn't mean that you're doomed to be obscure and midlist forever. I Like I said, ideally, you know, your first book does pretty well, goes into, you know, extra printings and word of mouth is mm-hmm. getting around that people like it. And so it's getting steady sales. So then your next book, people who've already read your book and liked it, have, remember your name and they're more likely to pick up your next book. And then in that way, your audience grows over time. Of course, commercial publishing is is very much focused on the hot new thing, on the here and the now and pushing kind of new stuff at at consumers. Like here's the new product, here's the new line, here's the cool new it thing that you have to have this season. So I I understand if you're an author and you don't have that push and you're not a lead title and you're a mid-list and you're feeling like you're ignored or forgotten. It doesn't mean that you're unloved. <laughs> I think that's what causes a lot of writers stress in this business is that they get, you know, they look at what other people are getting, basically. Because remember, you're not privy to all of the other pressures or all of the other expectations that this author who's getting all the press and all the money and all the whatever, you don't see what pressures that they have to live up to. You don't see what expectations are on their book. You only see the good news. You only see the highlights real of their life. So, and then you're, you know, I know it's hard to not compare. You're always going to compare, especially with your peers. Like, oh, my friend is getting this or, oh, my friend is getting that. Why am I not getting these things? And I know that hurts because, you know, that's assigning a monetary, that's just assigning value to your work. And it always hurts when you're appraised. And it's not as much as money as you were hoping for, or it's not as big as you were hoping for. And I know that hurts, but it doesn't mean you're unloved or unappreciated, I think. So I don't know. Do we have anything else that we want to say? Any more, any more doomsday news we can hand down? I tried down. to end it on an up, up note. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. I mean, Success is what you make it. Yeah. Success is what you make it. And my advice for a lot of people is always look, (laughs) expect the worst, but hope for the best because, and this is actually something that I stole from Madame Mayo by Brian Jakes, by the way. (laughs) Um, but it, it is true because I think what, what causes the greatest disappointment in publishing both on the author and the publishing side is expectations. Your expectations or your publisher's expectations might be too high. And if you don't reach them, no matter how successful your book actually is, the feeling that you've let them down or you've let yourself down can be crushing. And I know that. So (laughs) what I, you know, managing expectations is a huge, huge part of this business, both in practice as in like, okay, we're going to try and figure out what the accounts are expecting to buy what the accounts are expecting to sell. So we're going to have to anticipate that blah, 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 blah. The whole thing about publishing is, is managing expectations. And of course, the longer you're in it and the longer you, the more you do it, the better able you're able to manage expectations and the better able you're going to guess the size of the market, the size of your book. Of course, everybody makes mistakes because publishing like any other art form or any other 
creative business really is hit and miss. Sometimes you have a sleeper hit that, you know, was bought for little money, didn't have any marketing push, but it just took off because people loved it and they kept talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. That happened with 13 Reasons Why by Jay Asher. You know, that I don't know or I don't know if that book ever hit the New York Times bestseller list, but that book has been it continuously in print forever, as far as I can tell. It's been in print for a really, really, really long time. So, you know, I know it's not flashy and I don't even know how many of our listeners can think off the top of their head who Jay Asher is, but I bet you most of our listeners do know who Jay Asher is. Like, even if they haven't read 13 Reasons Why, the name might probably ping recognition because it's been selling that long. It's been going for that long. And people, you know, that book has resonated with a lot of readers. And so they keep buying it and they keep picking it up. So managing expectations is probably the only way to keep sane. You know, it's going to sound super pessimistic, but don't get your hopes up. It does. (laughs) I don't mean to say you shouldn't have any hope, but don't let your hopes run away with you. So, all right. Do we have anything else about sales and success? I feel like I could probably talk about this for a while. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's pretty good for at least our first go round. Yeah. I, I've thought about maybe a year from now, you know, after my book has been out for a year that maybe we can revisit the topic and I will give you guys the hard numbers of what I have, because I think that might be useful for people to know or to hear about, you know, obviously I can't give every dirty detail, but I feel like knowing what my publisher paid me and knowing how much my book has sold or how many copies Mm -hmm. my book has sold is probably going to give people a good idea or a gauge. Um, of what reality is like, you know, you might, like I said, you might see all the six figures, but that's not the reality of 95% of people who are getting book deals. So yeah. Okay. So let's move on to our next segments then. What are you working on? Agenting stuff. (laughs) That's about (laughs) it. No writing for me. Um, I, uh, assigned a client, which Yay! is super exciting. Um, I, we haven't announced it yet and I won't announce the name here just because we're waiting for all the agency paperwork to be signed. And I don't know whether that will be before or after this airs. Um, so I'll keep that close to my chest for the moment, but, uh, I'm very, very thrilled. So, so excited. Um, and so I am rereading her manuscript, uh, so that I can give her some editorial notes so that, uh, we can do some light revisions before we go on submission. So that's what I'm working on. Very exciting. How's book two going? Slow. (laughs) I mean, it's going, it's actually going pretty well, but I don't, I haven't had time as of mm-hmm. this recording, we are slightly under two weeks out from publication of Winter Song, so I have been swamped with other things, you know, writing blog posts, you know, doing kind of small business administration type things, mailing things, receiving things, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. So not a lot of actual time to sit down and write 
as much as I would like. Most of my writing is now on the weekends because that's kind of the only time I'm able to sit down and have long, uninterrupted stretches where I can think and I can work. So it's slower than I would like. And it's certainly slower than my drafting pace for winter song. Um, but then again, my personal situation was different then too. I had a different job. I, that didn't mentally tax me very much. So I could, you know, kind of write in between doing tasks or think about my book a lot, but my current job, I don't have that luxury. I go in and, you know, for the entire eight hours I'm there, I'm pretty much have to be on and focusing on the work that I have to do. And then of course, after that, I have to do all my promotional stuff for winter song. And that after that's done, then I'm just like, Oh God, I'm too tired to do anything. <laughs> so it's really just weekends, but it is going, which I feel pretty good about if it's, it's going and I feel good about it. I just wish I didn't have a million other things to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are you reading? Are you reading anything? I am. So I got, I have to look up the title now because I can't find it. Um, from the library, the first hold that came in through the library this year, and it's the sequel to The Jewel by Amy Ewing. Uh, let me pull I think it's The Black Rose. Maybe that's the title. I have to pull up my library app to see. what. Yeah, it's The White Rose by Amy Ewing. Now, I I have a galley of The Jewel that I think I need to reread because... I don't remember much that happens, but I was like, oh, well, there's a sequel out and I should read it. And I should also reread the first one because I can't remember a single thing about it. <laughs> I also got from NetGalley a copy of The Shadowland by Elizabeth Kostova. Elizabeth Kostova being the mo- being most well known for having written The Historian, which is um, that oh, yeah. vampire I was book. Like, yeah. I know I know her name. Um, so this is a book, I don't know much about it. I only know that it's set in Eastern Europe and the parts of the historian that I really loved were like the travel bits when she was traveling with her father and she was just talking about the world she was living in or the sites that she was seeing. So I'm kind of curious and years after the historian, I did like the historian. I do remember reading the historian in like one sitting or as close to one sitting as I could manage. Um, so I really liked that. And then I picked up the Swan Thieves years later, which was her follow-up novel to it. I don't think it hit nearly as big, but I read all, I also read that kind of in one sitting. I mean, a lot of her works are extremely long and unwieldy. Um, but they're, it's just interesting stuff to me. So I, I am curious what this book is. So about you, what are you reading? I am reading The Crown's Game by Evelyn Skye. Ooh. I read that last year. Yeah, I remember. So I'm excited to read that. Cool. Yeah. So do we have any off-menu recommendations this week? I, yes. Yes, I do, actually. Um, (laughs) I have started listening to a new podcast. It is called pod save america (laughs) it is hosted by um former obama staffers um some of his speechwriters and a few other people and it is a podcast about dealing living under the trump administration um they were obama staffers so clearly they have a particular point of view 
about living in a Trump administration. Um, but they have guests every, uh, every episode and do interviews with people. And, um, I have found it to be sort of calming in a way. It's not, calming is probably not quite accurate, but it, it doesn't cause me anxiety. Um, it does help me feel, um, it, it, it affirms the world that I'm living in (laughs) and, uh, and it, it, it's good. It's really good. Um, they have an interview with Obama that was heartbreaking. Um, for me, it was actually a very funny, delightful interview, but of course it was heartbreaking for me to listen to it. Um, for their first episode, they, um, interviewed the women who were organizing the women's march on Washington to Micah. I can't remember her last name right now. Um, and I cannot remember her colleague either. I can't remember their names, but these incredible women who talked about, um, their own, you know, personal experiences and their, um, organizational work for the women's March. So that was a really phenomenal interview. So the podcast itself is really great. Um, definitely political. And I know that a lot of us are looking for some escapism right now. So it's not that if you're looking to escape, uh, don't listen to this podcast, (laughs) but, um, you know, I, I am enjoying it. I feel, um, it's, it's a positive, it's positive for me. It's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. On the political side, um, like I said, you know, those, if you follow either Kelly or me on Twitter, you know what our political views are. Um, so if you share our political views, I do have a website for you to go to if you need, um, just some guidance or help on what to do in under this administration. If you want to affect as much change as you can, it's called it's time to fight. And it is run by, uh, my friend Celeste, who's also a book, book blogger, blogger, excuse me, a book blogger. And you guys probably know her under the handle Celeste underscore underscore pewter. Um, she is a political staffer. And so she knows, you know, kind of the best way to get through to your elected representatives. And she also has, uh, pages and and stuff about current issues that you may want to call on and also scripts. She provides scripts to guide you through calling your representatives. Um, She does amazing work. She does amazing work and she does this all for free and on her spare time. So also in the show notes, I'm going to link, uh, to her Ko-Fi or coffee coffee. I think mm-hmm. it's technically coffee, I think, but it's spelled like Ko-Fi, or at least that's the way yeah, I always read it. Weird. If you guys want to, you know, send Celeste some money for all of the free labor that she's doing, uh, trying to educate us about the political process. Um, I'll leave, I'll leave a link there too, but she is wonderful and I've learned a lot. And mm-hmm. this is kind of the first time in my entire adult life since I could vote that I've actually been engaged and calling my representatives and you know it it it's hard like i know a lot of us writers are introverts and we have terrible phone anxiety uh i don't necessarily have phone anxiety because one of my jobs was uh, working at a call center so i lost that kind of fear of talking to strangers but i understand that it it's difficult for a lot of us to pick up the phone and just talk to people so those scripts i think are extremely helpful 
And if you are interested in doing that, I would also say that the first time is the hardest. And then after that, it gets easier. Calling your representative mm-hmm. uh, get a lot easier after that. Um, so, yep. so I'll recommend yep. that. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if I've seen or watched or done anything. Mark wants to see La La Land, which I am not particularly keen on, to be honest. I don't know. Yeah. It's something that I'll like watch on Netflix when it comes out, but I feel no compulsion to go see it in theaters. I'm just a little bit miffed because he didn't want to go see Rogue One, but he wants to see this of all things. Like it's like the one He didn't want to go see Rogue One? No, he was just kind of meh about it, so I was like, fine. Yeah, fine. So um it's like this is like this is the Okay, sorry y'all, but this is the whitest movie I've ever heard of in my life. And it's set in LA, which is where I'm from, by the yeah. way. It's my birthplace and where I was raised. That is not what LA looks like. No. What kind of fantasy it, LA is this? Isn't part of the plot that like Ryan Gosling is gonna save jazz music or something? Like Probably. really? <laughs> I don't know. I only just was able to differentiate between him and Ryan Reynolds. So like, um, and I'm pretty much only ever able to differentiate Ryan Reynolds because he's funnier. Uh, and also he was Deadpool and that's like it. That's like the only way I can tell the two of them apart. So, eh. (laughs) but yeah, not a ton. I mean, I'm still like, there are a lot of movies that I feel like I want to catch up on and that I need to catch up on especially the Oscar nominations have been announced and a lot of them are in fact quite interesting to me. Like I want to see hidden figures so much. I want to see that. Uh, I also really want to read the book, but I really want to see hidden figures and moonlight. I've heard really excellent things about as well. Oh, me too. Um, so you know, there's a lot of movies I want to go see, but I'm just, you know, like I said, we're just under two weeks out from release and I'm doing nothing but, Working, working, working. My off rec- off menu recommendation would be sleep. I think sleep is great. <laughs> Too bad I haven't had a lot of it the past like month, but sleep is great. That's my that's my off menu recommendation. If you Everybody can get, get it, more sleep. You know what? Self care. I think self care is very important in this day and age. So get yes. your sleep. Eat your vegetables. <laughs> Exercise when you can, get off social media for a little while, just take care of yourself. Getting off social media is crucial, I feel. And I mean, I'm not on social media much anymore during the day. Partially it's because I I am, like I said, at my day job and, you know, just focusing on getting stuff done there does take a lot of my concentration. But I also find, find myself deliberately staying off of social media because every time I open it, something there's some other news that I'm just like, I don't know how to handle this. And then I get overwhelmed or upset or angry. So, yeah, just unplug if necessary. If you need to to step back, that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I urge you all to get engaged with our political process if you are Americans. Now, I know not all of our listeners are, but... If you are American, I do, and regardless of your political persuasion, I do urge you to get involved in our government because it is astonishing to me 
the more I learn about it, how little we seem to be involved in this process. And the and our elected officials technically work for us. So, you know, you want to give them a review, right? If you, you know, a, a boss will give you a review of your performance. And I think, you know, calling your electeds is a really good way of, you know, periodically checking in, seeing how they're doing, um, how they're voting, how they're governing, what what laws or bills they're in, you know introducing into the legislature, and what your thoughts are. It does take a lot of work. I'm not saying it doesn't take a lot of work because it does, but I think for me anyway. And of course, I'm a Ravenclaw. I like information. When I'm getting inundated by all this news, like left and right, there's just news coming from every possible angle that you can think of. I get overwhelmed. But for me, it's helpful to gather information. So the more I know about something, the more I understand the process, the better I feel. So if there are any of anyone else out there like me, having, you know, information gathering and having concrete steps helps me focus and helps me from freaking out when I try and look at the, when I look at the big <laughs> picture, because oh, it's, uh, you know, the world is on fire. <laughs> all right so we did get another we got a star which we thank y'all for giving us another Yay! star Huzzah, but no written review and kelly is desperate for some written reviews so <laughs> <laughs> i'm thirsty i'm thirsty for your reviews <laughs> oh yeah uh, it's i mean my external validation thing is real, but you know, I have some dignity, but we do love it when you guys give us reviews very much. It makes us very happy. All right. Uh, yeah. So I don't believe, let me just check and see. We don't have any questions for this week, but, um, as, as we've always mentioned, go ahead and ask us, you can either at me or Kelly, at our, our Twitter handles, or you can use the hashtag pub crawl, which is the question we got last week was via that hashtag. So if, if you guys just keep using it, that would be great. Cause Kelly and I do track it. Um, so yeah, that is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about POV or point of view and the ways that you can write that in your books. Um, so as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or my website, PenAndParsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website, SJJones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, the author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.